Anyways, for the rest of you, if you would um, open your your worship folder, uh, we've got the text Psalm 21 printed for you on pages 10 and 11. Um, If you would turn your attention to that as we uh, are going through this summer, we're going through uh, each of these psalms uh, sequentially. So we come to Psalm 21 um, this morning. And I'm without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and read it, and then I'll pray for us, um, and we will jump right in. So Psalm 21 to the choir master is a psalm of David. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exults. You have given him his heart's desire. You have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you, and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Your Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight this morning. And would you help us to together rejoice abundantly in your strength and blessing. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I think one of the fun things about these psalms is that uh, you've probably seen if we have gone through them that there are a lot of, uh, of re- repetition in them. The same themes keep coming up. Um, a lot of the same language is used in many of the psalms. But it's really fascinating when you dig down in, um, and even sometimes in the most subtlest ways, how they set themselves apart from each other, and they each take on their own unique identity, and they're applicable um, to specific situations. And I kind of mentioned this a little bit last week. When we looked at Psalm 20, um, it was abundantly clear that this was a kind of psalm that the whole community uh, would have said together um, in a context of worship, particularly before going into battle. It was when there's a a day of trouble that is looming um, and that there was an anticipation of battle, then this was a psalm that was uniquely fit in their repertoire of worship to prepare um, and shape the people's hearts in order to engage in that day of trouble. Um, and this psalm, we see a lot of the same themes, but almost from, from, and we see a lot of the same language with this same issue of, you know, fulfilling uh, the king's, the heart's desire um, and his requests um, and plans and all of these things. That this is, this is the same language picking up from Psalm 20, but this is actually, 21 is looking at it from the opposite vantage point, that this is a psalm that is, given for the context of after the victory has already happened. Um, It is a rejoicing in the deliverance of God and his victory, and it is shaping the hearts of the people, not as much for the battle, but for life after the victory. Um, That what does life look like in light of the victory and deliverance that God um, has given his people? 
And I think after reflecting on this all week and digging, digging into it um, and just and really soaking in the language of this psalm, uh, one thing that really convicted me and jumped out is how easy it is to look to the Lord during the day of trouble and then afterwards when the victory has come and the trouble has, has been relieved, um, how the impulse to do that kind of wanes over time. And I think we see this uh, very commonly in all kinds of spheres of life. Uh, when I was in college, I had a friend who we were, um, we were trying to record music together um, that was very bad and that none of this has survived. But this is back in the day where, where uh, recording on a computer software was not as widely available as it is now. And you had to get this, like a device, like a little four-track recorder we were looking for to record some of our music. I didn't have one. None of our friends had one. My friends had one. There was a guy I knew who was kind of outside of our friend group. Uh, he was a great guy, but very much on the periphery um, of people that I hung out with. Uh, but he, come to find out, had a four-track recorder. And so, buddy, hey, want to join a band? <laughs> uh, and he was very useful um, because we had a need. And then somehow, after we finished our little project, our friendship drifted apart, and it went back to where um, it used to be. Um, you know this phenomenon if you have a truck or if you have a boat, that people want to hang out with you when they have a need of moving something or recreation, and then maybe not so much after the fact. And this is a common thing. I think that this is um, what this psalm is getting at, is we have this impulse um, when we need the Lord's deliverance to long for it and to look to him that he would do it. And then after he does it, then, then that, you know, the, that feeling of need kind of goes away. And then our feeling of communion and need of him um, can easily drift away with it. And so what we have here is a psalm, again, for the whole people of God, for us to be formed together around the victory of the Lord in an ongoing way um, that is to shape our hearts as we engage with it, to continue in an abundant joy of life with God, even after the victory and the deliverance that he has given um, his people. Uh, There's three points in here um, that I'm going to make, and they are all in reference to the king. Um, Because what we're going to see, hopefully, as we go through this, is that um, the king is, um, he's a representative on behalf of the people. He's also an example for the people. Uh, He is leading us in this life. Um, So this is going to be more application-based than in light of the great victory, and especially this is just expounded when we look at the king in light of the the type that Christ is a more full version of, of the victory that we have been given in Christ, the abundant grace that he has poured out on us, the rich blessings, all of these that we just read about in Ephesians chapter 1, that every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places he has bestowed on his people, that because of this, Um, What does that mean? What implications does that have for life? And there are three things. First, we see the king rejoices in the Lord's strength. Uh, Second, we're going to see that the king gives no quarter to evil. And third, we're going to see that the king stops his duties uh, to worship. So let's jump in first. Uh, uh, In the first point, the king rejoices in the Lord's strength. And if you will look, the very first phrase in here, O Lord, in your strength, the king rejoices. And before you say, well, that's kind of obvious, you literally took the first phrase and made a point out of it, um, that this, it is, 
for the psalm says it, so it's a profound point. But I think when we when we really start to sit in and, and soak in it, it's not so easy as it first sounds uh, in the first place. And especially if we remember uh, the context of Psalm 21, and we're looking at this in the context of a battle, what has the king just done? Is that the king has just gotten his military advisors together, um, has looked at the situation, has made plans, he's put together his army, he has gotten them organized, and they have gone out into battle, and now they have come back victorious. And what would be the easiest thing for the king to think in this situation? We did a really good job, and we beat those guys uh, because of our might. Especially after the victory, it is so easy to rejoice in our own strength as opposed to the strength of God. And I mean, just think about, again, a number of examples. Parents, uh, when you look at your kids and you're having a really hard time with them, oh, they're just individuals. They're all different. Um, You can't control them. You just have to walk along beside them and help them. And then when they're doing really well, how does that narrative change? is that then we feel this impulse to give advice to other parents about how their kids can look like our kids. Uh, Because it's something to do with us. It can look like the same with churches. Like, you know, when our church is um, not going well, it's just, you know, um, things aren't as rosy as that we would like, then we'll say things like, uh, this is just about slow, plodding faithfulness. We're just here to be faithful and do the best we can. And then when things blow up, then what happens? Then you start to give lecture series on how that we can, other churches can copy and do, do what we can do. Um, it is the, one of the most human things possible um, to whenever that the burden is not there anymore, to think of ourselves as far more capable um, than we actually are. And here, what does the king do? Rather than immediately revert in that, rather than let the clouds pass and just bask in what would have been tempting um, to say, look how capable of a leader I am, look at my plans. He says, oh Lord, in your strength, the king rejoices. That there is nothing that I have that has not been given as a great gift um, from God. Every little piece of goodness that I have has in some way been bestowed based on the king's, based on God's absolute generosity um, in support of the individual, in support of the whole people of God. This is the posture of what it looks like to truly um, live in light of the victory of God. And another, just to add another element to this, what's at stake here? So what's the harm in some ways is if we just naively think that we are better at this than we actually are. Uh, Look look at the language as we read on through here in these verses, what happens. Um, you have given him the desire of his heart, and you have not withheld the request of his lips. Uh, you meet him with rich blessings, and you set a crown of fine gold upon his head. And which is going to set a pattern which, of going here that, you know, keep in mind what the king had asked for uh, was deliverance from the enemy, was to survive this encounter, uh, to get out of the day of trouble that was there. But look at how, how God actually answers the king's request. It is like he gives him what he wants, but he also gives him tenfold beyond uh, what the king had actually asked for. Keep going. He said he asked life of you, uh, that he was, you know, survived this encounter, and you gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. 
And in a way that, you know, even at this time forever and ever, you know, this was often used of kings, but it was, it was kind of viewed as a blessing that of life to the fullest, of all the way to the end, that there would not be a short life, but that it would be a very long, rich life full of blessings. And so this is more than just surviving the moment. It is a longer vision. And of course, how much, almost ironically, how much more is this amplified when we think about this in terms of Christ and the victory that he has given us? That the request, the desire to get out of the day of trouble due to the unmerited mercy of God, of what he has done for his people, has given beyond tenfold. And I think what is at stake for us is that when we, when we slip into the attitude of that we are more capable than we are, what we do is that we miss the abundance of the blessing that God is always holding on behalf of his people. So this calling to rejoice in the strength of God, it is not just to put his people down so that they feel more humble about themselves. It is actually so that they will have access to so much more than they could ever dream of holding for themselves. And I think that this is something that just permeates um, the rest of the Bible uh, when God talks about uh, we saw this in Ephesians, talks about this life, uh, the over and abundant life that God has given his people through Christ that is absolutely unmerited and is that it is far beyond um, uh, what we can imagine. In fact, if we read on in, in, in Ephesians 1, then he actually, Paul prays um, that we would be able to comprehend the height and the depth. It's almost like it's beyond even our comprehension, that we would need his help um, to comprehend the great uh, generosity of God. And so I think what we see here is that on our worst days, when we feel the trouble, when we feel that things are not going well, uh, when we, we feel that the trouble is much bigger than God, uh, what we have is a king. We have Christ. We have the true great king who was given for us as a sign of the deliverance and his commitment that he has given to us. But then even on our good days, it's what we have. We have the same king that is inviting us in, not just to engage with the day of trouble, but to look at the life after the victory, to inviting us to more, to inviting us to do a kind of fellowship and a peace and a communion uh, with God himself that will allow our hearts to rejoice far more than they would be able to if we were only thinking about ourselves. And so I think what this calls us to do in our words in our mind, in our body, when we gather together, we gather in community groups, we gather here, um, is to speak of this, is to think of this, and to ponder and encourage each other in the great strength and the benevolence of God all the time, so that our hearts might follow suit, and they might feel the freedom of that kind of rejoicing. Uh, But there's more than joy going on here, um, if we read on further. Uh, almost half of this psalm is dedicated to this mili- more military language. Um, if you get here, uh, starting in verse 8 in particular, uh, we have all of these words about what uh, will happen um, to uh, God's enemies. And this is what, um, what I think is happening here, is this we're leading into the second point that the king gives no quarter to evil. What it's trying to illustrate to us is this effect that God very much cares about justice is that there will always be threats that are going to come. 
And in fact, being delivered uh, one time uh, from one day of trouble, it doesn't mean that there are not going to be more coming, coming down the road. We know that there are going to be more. But it's showing in an ongoing way that God's commitment to justice for all people, not just his own people, but also for the sake of the world. That God does not like it when evil triumphs and when the weak and the vulnerable are caught up in those schemes. But he is actually committed um, to doing something about it. And let me say this before I kind of break this down. There's some, uh, there's some debate about uh, these pronouns here, who they're referring to as your hand will find you out, that you will make him as a blazing oven. Um, most of them, which I kind of take that these are referring to the king, um, in that in verse 9, we see that the Lord here is spoken of in the third person. It might be speaking to God as it continues. Um, for, I mean, it had already done this earlier. It, um, even in the first section, um, it, in verse 7, says the king refers to trust in the Lord. So it refers to him in the third person as well. But I think the effect of this is that either way you take it, that there is a great unity in between what God is doing and what the king is doing. And so we see the king is undertaking, according to the character of God, he is undertaking his duties in an ongoing way in life, mirroring it after um, God's commitment to love justice um, and to deliver the weak and the oppressed. Uh, But I think this all has two implications for us um, under this point when coming to um, the king being having a disposition to give no quarter to evil. One is there's an application to those who are actually uh, saying this song. Um, If there is a tendency of the people of God after the victory has already happened um, to slip into kind of a a lackadaisicalness or to not look to God um, for their help, um, there would certainly also be a tendency to say that uh, maybe um, following in God's way doesn't matter all that much either. And so as the whole body was to say this together, it is a reminder to all of us um, that God's way is still good and it is still right. And that as we feel the temptation to say maybe it doesn't matter so much, it is showing that only God's way persists in the end. That God is the one who is committed to rooting out evil and committed to even having a space of justice uh, for all people that that is what the end is going to be. And so it behooves us to be part of that team instead of part of, that, part of the other team. Um, I, I had a friend who's a firefighter, and I used to talk to him. One of their troubles in training, um, uh, best practices in firefighting, is that um, if, if enough time goes on and enough responsibility is taken up by the firefighters, there, there are very few accidents. Um, because they're paying dividends for um, taking safety precautions and whatever. But the, the, the other side of that is it also tends to lull the firefighters into the sense that, well, nothing ever bad is happening, so it must not matter. All these things that we've been doing must not matter that much. And so one of the big reminders in training is that even in the presence where there is no obvious badness coming from this, um, that this is still very important. Um, and this is one of the reminders to us of the people of God. It is reminding us that whatever it looks like on the outside, uh, that evil will eventually be rooted out. Um, and that God's way, that the good is what will persist. Um, and I love this. And look at verse 9. 
um, in a poetic way. See how these uh, second lines are shorter? And that appears in the Hebrew as well. It actually cuts down the number of syllables. So almost like a, in a poetic way, you feel the shortness even in reading the words of how, of how long evil lasts um, in front of, before the presence of God. But that's one implication. But there's another implication here that is equally important, other than that just the wisdom um, that is this, is this is seeking to form in the people of God. And just there, that there is a great, just a reminder to us, there's a grace and wisdom just as much as there is grace and forgiveness. Uh, but looking at forgiveness, there's something else. If you'll look at um, how the king is described in verse 6, he says that you make him most blessed forever. And it uses this word blessed. And the English here actually kind of obscures this a little bit. Almost every one of the main commentators uh, are in agreement that what is trying to communicate is that the king himself is both blessed and becomes a blessing. That what is trying to be communicated is that God has richly blessed the king and that the king actually then in turn becomes either an example of blessing for other people or an active agent in blessing for other people. And I think we see both of those things exhibited when we read, when we read further and just in seeing what the king does on behalf of the people. And of course, this language is back, looks back to the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12, uh, which says this. God says to Abraham, and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Which is showing this is when the people of God were first formed. And this means that both the generosity of God that, is, that was given to his people was never given just for the sake of God's people, but it was to be shared. And even the curses that God pronounces here is that they were not just for the sake of, of keeping some in, some out, some up, and some down. It was actually by instilling a, a, a context of blessing for all people in all nations. And so what else is the king doing here other than just, um, and the, even the, the people who are singing this doing, other than just looking at themselves and their own character? Is that they're actually being molded by this psalm to take up the work of God. That just as we allow no quarter of evil in our own lives, but that we catch this vision for a community where evil also does not exist. We catch a vision for a community where the weak are supported, where the plans of those who would prey upon the weak are thwarted in every way that we can. And of course, how are we looking at this? We are looking at this from the vantage point of the king, that the king was God's agent who was called to do this on behalf of the people. And it was constantly imperfect. It was constantly run amok. And constantly the people of God actually ended up worse than the the surrounding nations. And one of God's main concerns, especially, again, as we look at the prophet, was that not only is there evil in the midst of the people, but God's character is not viewed beyond them. That no one knows of, of the blessing of God because of the character of his people. And so what has he done? He has sent Christ, who is the true king, who is the one who defends his people, who is the one who saves them even from themselves, even from the the evil that is inside, 
And through his spirit, he, he catches the people up that just as we have received this same grace and blessing from him, that we have something that is very, very important to share. And that life in the people of God, it is not just the, is saved from the absence of the day of trouble. It is certainly that. That God has taken a ragamuffin people and has made them the uh, agents, he's made them the objects of all of his blessings. But this blessing doesn't have the people of God in view only. But it is for the sake of sharing and spreading the name of God all over the place. All over the place. And how the king did was he was enforcing righteousness and justice in his context in the way that he could. But there are many ways that we have just as much of of a way to do this um, even in our own lives. I mean, you think about how you just think about these concepts of justice and mercy being, being um, um, taken up here in our body. Uh, one of the main things that we, we see is access to our social circles. That some of us have a lot of friends. And some of us are connected to a lot of people and we have resources and whatever. And there are there others who don't. And if you have ever moved into a new place, you know exactly what it feels like to be the new people and to not have access. What a great vision for us to take up of an attitude of sharing our people and our space with those that don't have it. And of course, this extends to the way that we vote. Of course, this extends to the sphere that we have in our, in our jobs um, of justice and mercy. What this is doing, it is shaping the people of God for a kind of creativity where we long for the space that we have been given much grace and we long for the space where the kingdom of God is, is made visible um, to all people in all places. What a wonderful calling and what a wonderful gift um, that we have been given um, to take up with God. But here's the last, let me jump to the last point. Uh, this verse struck me very, um, very much when um, I was helped to see, I think, what is going on here. This third point, that the king actually stops his duties to worship. Look at verse 13. So all along we've been seeing the, we've been seeing the people addressing um, their worship to God. And then we saw the king individually, um, hand in hand um, with God in many ways, um, addressing um, the issues that were affecting the people And then look here, verse 13, it says, be exalted, O Lord, in your strength, and we will sing and praise your power. Almost with that word, we, that the king who was up here, who was taking leadership, has has stepped back in a way and joined with the rest of the people for one purpose, that God would be exalted in his strength. That the king stepped out of the way and he joined the party of worshipers. And this is very different than what happened in Psalm 20. In Psalm 20, it ended with an empowerment of the king to take up, um, to take up these, the mantle of battle and to lead courageously. Here, he steps back and he puts his duties aside, having done that, and he joins the congregation and he looks forward to the Lord who is the source of all grace and all strength and he worships. And I, what a powerful thing to leave us all with. Because there's a sense in which worship is a duty of ours, 
that's something that we have been called to do, it is also one of the greatest gifts that God has given his people. To be fully satisfied in God's gifts and his redemption. To have a heart fully tuned in one place. Not like what my wife says, which is very, we're very accurate with all kinds of tabs open. Um, with, just, with attention going in lots of ways. One place. And that is what worship is. Despite all the work we've been given, despite all of the past things, what we have been invited to is a living and a breathing relationship with God himself that consumes every part of our being. And I do think there's a reminder in here to stop. Like, any gardener will tell you how easy it is to work outside and to notice, always notice what needs to be pruned and whatever, what needs to be watered, and how easy it is to not take the time to stop and notice and enjoy the garden, uh, what it was there for. It's a very similar principle here, that there is that reminder of Sabbath um, that is very important for us, but it is not there that is just to give us something new to do. It is there because our heart and our souls need it. And even more than our hearts and our souls need it, that God has given us something to wrap in a, a totally single direction. He has given us something to, the, to totally consume us. And what he wants from us is nothing more than to take part in that gift and to allow our hearts to turn our attention to him in worship. I want to end with this. Kind of an opposite story of, of the, the first story. Um, Lauren and I, we, we were thinking about this. We can name several instances in our lives where we moved to a new place. Um, we were, you know, uh, for whatever reason, uh, we made new friends. And there are, several, there are several instances we can point to that we were in a state of crisis in one way or another. And there were always people that were there. Um, that weren't necessarily the people we would have sought out to pick to be friends. You know, they weren't the ones that were going to advance us in, you know, socially in some way. They might not have been the ones we had the most in common with. But what they were is they, would be, they brought us meals. They walked with us as we cried. And they were just there constantly. And those people became some of the sweetest friends that we have ever had. It was almost never the ones that we just, we just looked at and said, you know, this is going to be a special thing. It was usually the ones who were just there. And I say that I'm making a lesser to a greater argument here. That if that is true with people in the smallest way, how much more is it for the God who is always there? The one who has delivered for us a great victory and who has continues to hold his blessings there for us every day. So I'm going to follow suit with my words now and stop um, so that we can sing. Um, and I'm not even going to pray in between. Um, I do want, we are seeking the Lord in his strength. But let's take these good things that God has given us and turn our attention and express them back in worship, I think, in the way that he would have us.